just uh, content information for the episode today. Today we will be making references to genocide, including discussion of Nazism and the Holocaust. Hey, hey, Martin. Hey, Christina. Will you go get me a Lacroix? Uh, no. Will you please get me a Lacroix? Yeah, I mean that's very polite, but no. The podcast requires that you get me a Lacroix. The podcast require. What, what does that even mean? <laughs> It's absolutely essential that you get me a LaCroix. Essential? Mm-hmm. No. No, I'm, I am not getting you a LaCroix. You have no other choice. You must get me a LaCroix. Wow. I don't, I, I don't even know what to make of that. <laughs> Look, I, no, no, I refuse. Okay, fine. You've won this experiment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm very excited that this is an experiment that has winners and losers. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to They Did What to What, a virtual journal club where we read the classic psychology studies that help explain how we think about how we think. I'm Martin, a communication studies professor and former psychology researcher, and that other voice you heard was Christina, a researcher in psychopharmacology. Wow, you said that correctly. I often Nobody get says it wrong. That correctly. I, I, yeah. I, I think I got it wrong last time. I will get it wrong next time. But no, you're a neuropharmacology researcher. That's what you do. What else that could I say? I <laughs> so, do you have any guesses from that intro of what we're talking about today? <laughs> uh, based on that intro and based on the fact that we do, in fact, schedule these ahead of time. <laughs> We are talking about Milgram's uh, experiments with authority. You're right. We're talking about the 1963 article by Stanley Milgram. It's commonly called like the shock studies or Milgram Mm. studies of authority or Milgram's obedience studies. Right. And the title of this article is Behavioral Study of Obedience. It only has one author, Stanley Milgram, and it was published in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. Behavioral study of obedience. Does this imply that we are dealing with behaviorism again, or are they using behavioral in a in a more general sense? Behavioral in a more general sense. This okay. isn't behaviorism. Okay, we're done good. with behaviorism. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> behaviorism was never heard from again. <laughs> so, before we talk about the actual article, I just wanted to give one bit of information about Stanley Milgram. I checked Mm -hmm. out the book that was written about his whole life called The Man Who Shocked the World, and I started reading it, and the book went into so much minutia of Stanley Milgram ate this food, and he lived on this block, and his mother wore this pattern of dress, (laughs) and I was like, oh, that's too much, that's too much. So I just picked out some pieces. Okay. Um, But he was a social psychologist. He was born in 1933. So he's born right before World War II, and Mm. he died very young. He died at only 51 Uh years old. But he got his PhD in social psychology from Harvard, and then he became an assistant professor at Yale in 1960. He did his notable work, the um, shock experiments or the behavior obedience experiments at Yale, Mm-hmm. And he was motivated because he was a Jewish man and his parents were Jewish. They were Jewish immigrants from Romania and Hungary. Oh, oh, okay. And his father 
um, participated in World War II. He had relatives that participated in World War II. Right. And obviously he still had family in Romania and Hungary. Right. So he was extremely moved yeah. by the events of the Holocaust and right. of Nazism. Right. And one quote that sticks out, he wrote in a correspondence to his friend. He said, quote, I should have been born into the German-speaking Jewish community of Prague in 1922 and died in a gas chamber some 20 years later. How I came to be born in a Bronx hospital, I'll never quite understand. So yeah. he really held the events of World War II and Nazism and discrimination and genocide, obviously, um, close to his heart. Right. And he has stated and people have theorized that these experiments directly came out of um, that upbringing and having that community and that background of having family affected by the Holocaust, of having a father who fought in World War II, right. of being Jewish and seeing this persecution and genocide of Jewish people. Um, so that's the real foundation, the real underpinning of this study. I, I've seen that attribution before, too, that this and a few other social psychology experiments of the era were outgrowths of of World War II, trying to figure out why do people, how could this possibly have happened? Yeah, so, exactly. Milgram. Yeah. And for Stanley Milgram, the person, that's a very real and true and repeated thing. It's not something that was made up over time. Oh, okay. Uh, at the end, there's Stanley Milgram, the movie character. And that was not true for Stanley Milgram, the movie character, but we will talk about that in, uh, <laughs> at the very end. Oh, okay. Which is very silly. But in real life, for the real article and the real Stanley Milgram, it is 100% a direct response to World War II mm -hmm. and to Nazism. Okay. Milgram opens the paper directly referencing Nazism and directly referencing genocide. Mm. So the introduction to the paper is all about obedience and how obedience is a basic element whenever you have more than one human in a place. Mm. If you're not totally isolated and by yourself, there is obedience to authority. There's okay. submission, there's defiance, there's obedience, there's the will of others. And if you have any sort of communal living, this will be an inherent and inescapable element Got of it. communal living. And he said, it's been reliably established that from 1933, so the year of his birth, to 45, mm -hmm when World War II ended, millions of innocent people were systematically slaughtered on command. Mm. Gas chambers were built, death camps were guarded, daily quotas of corpses were produced with the same efficiency as the manufacture of appliance. So he frames right. everything as millions of people were forcibly and intentionally killed. How did this happen? And right. his question is, how do people obey orders or why were people obeying these orders right. to do this? Right. Because um, this couldn't be the will of one person. One person right. had the will and then everyone else submitted to that will. Right, right. Is that what you were taught? Were you taught the study? Do you remember being taught the study? Yeah. So 
we did this in intro psych. And then I think I mentioned before that I took a class that was called studies in psychology or famous studies or pivotal studies or something. So obviously we talked about this. And I think we also talked about it in my research methods class for some reason. Ooh. Uh, in any event, yes, we did hear some of this. We, we didn't get this kind of broader, um, I don't know, almost philosophical framing of obedience is fundamental to all human society. We didn't yeah. really get that framing, which is, which does really, I don't know, in terms of, in terms of having a so what for your study, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a big so what. It every is. Every interaction that every human has had <laughs> with another human has an element of obedience and authority. Yeah. It also makes me think there were, in this era, a lot of other sorts of scholars and you know political theorists and and um, philosophers who were born around the same time who were working on the same sorts of problems. So, hearing this also helps me contextualize Milgram, you know, more broadly in terms of intellectuals who were working in this era. Yeah, and Milgram's study is certainly the famous study, but his this study is about eight pages long, and it had. I think it was like 10 to 12 references at the mm, end. Yeah. And for a lot of these older papers, there's like two references and one of right. the references is their own. Right. <laughs> but Milgram does um, state that there are multiple people contemporary to him that are also working on obedience and he cites their work in this okay. paper. I didn't yeah. go read those other studies um, and maybe we will in the future, but Milgram was not the only person studying obedience at this time. His study design was just so shocking. No pun intended. Right. It was quite <laughs> shocking um, that I think it really became uh, attention grabbing in a way that other studies maybe weren't. Right, 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 right. So he went on in his article after saying, Obedience is the cornerstone of all human interaction right. to describe the procedure, the very famous procedure. Okay. So I'll go, I'll give a brief overview of the general procedure, but a lot of this article, the vast majority of this article, is just delving into specifics of each element of the setup. Okay. So most of this is going to be methods description because okay. most of the paper is methods description. Okay. Yeah. But in general, this experiment had a naive subject. So when I say subject, that's the person who comes in to perform the study and they have no background information about the study. Right. And the naive subject is ordered to administer an electric shock to a victim. Mm. The shock is a simulated shock. It's not a real shock. No one was actually being harmed in the study. There were no real shocks in the study. Right. And the person receiving the shock is, quote, in on it or an actor that's part of the experiment. So they know the experiment ahead of time. They've agreed to this. They're an actor in a play, basically. Right. And they're not being harmed. The subject who is per, um, performing these shocks or administering these shocks is told that the shocks range from 15 volts to 450 volts. Mm -hmm. And the instrument that they use to do the shocks is looks like a real instrument. They put a ton of attention to detail in building this <laughs> fake shock instrument. Okay, cool. And each of the levels is labeled in a group, and the lowest group is slight shock, 
And then the very, very top, the 450 volts, is labeled danger, severe shock with a triple X, 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 X (laughs) on it. So they were were really trying to sell like, this is really bad. These are bad shocks. (laughs) The victim or the person who is in on the experiment who's pretending to receive the shocks has standardized responses to the shocks. So for every subject who came in, the victim behaved in the same way. Right. And the naive subject, the person coming in to do the study, is told that the study is the effect of punishment on memory and learning. Oh, okay. So they were told, we don't know that much about memory. We don't know that much about learning. We don't know if punishment enhances memory and learning. So you're doing this procedure. You're doing this so that we can advance the science of memory and learning because we don't know that much. So there's, in essence, they're making fun of behaviorists. Oh, yes, yes, they are. <laughs> Relying on the, on the participant, knowing enough about behaviorism to go, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like something a behaviorist would do. Yeah, shock some people. I read Watson. <laughs> so, yeah, they're told, like, we want people to learn better. And we're, see- we're just asking the question, if they're shocked when they have a wrong right. answer, will they learn better? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Milgram termed every shock that the subject who didn't know what was going on administered to the victim who was in on it, every shock is termed obedience. So the person Mm. being studied is being studied for how obedient they are to the authority. And the authority is telling them they have to shock the victim. Okay, so so they've just defined obedience as administering a shock when requested. Right. The outcome of the experiment is the primary endpoint or the thing that they're looking for and the thing that they're measuring is, will the subject who doesn't know what's going on continue to administer shocks to the victim? Great. And if they don't, they're termed defiant. Mm. And if they do continue to administer shocks, they're termed obedient. Okay, great. The first study, this 1963 study, is like the basic study, the most... uh, not bare bones, but the most foundational. Okay. And in the future, Milgram did a whole series of studies. I think it was 23 studies where mm. he varied any element. So any element that we're talking about in the methods, sure. Milgram went on to do a variation of. And I'll talk a little bit about those as we go through. Oh, so Milgram was that guy. Milgram, yes. was, Milgram was the least publishable unit guy. Milgram yes. was, <laughs> I'm going to do this study and then I'm going to publish, I'm going to get a new publication out of every manipulation I could possibly do. Yes. And then he reanalyzed like elements of the experiment and published the reanalysis of the, of the survey of the, each experiment. Like, yes, absolutely. Pad the tenure dossier, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so... Big pause, big dramatic pause here, where I ask you, who do you think the subjects were for this experiment? Oh, okay. What, what, what year are we in? 63. These were being performed in like 60 to 63. So, so we're not out of the realm of possibility that they are just kidnapping orphans. However, <laughs> Milgram is going to have a particular sensitivity toward that. So... I'm going to say these are undergrads in intro to psychology classes. And what sort of um, 
like makeup if you had to fill out a table describing? Ah, uh, okay. Well, so it's 63, so we're probably beyond the point where we care whether they're right-handed or not. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe, correct. maybe, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if most of the methods were describing whether or not the person was left-handed. <laughs> But um, I'm going to say they were all men. Hey, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> oh, great. So it's going to be like the um, like, like Galton's synesthesia experiment, where we're going to generalize from 100 boys to all of humanity <laughs> throughout all time as the basis of the invention of language. Yes. Great. So, the element that you got wrong is these were not undergrads. There was actually a range of ages and of occupations. Oh, this is 1963, so your occupation is the most important thing about you. Uh, right, we've invented sociology. So We've invented sociology, and he's a social psychologist. So Okay, well, but, that's good, that's good. Yeah, we've make, we're making progress here. We have 40 men from 20 <laughs> years old to 50 years old. Sure, sure. And I think that all that society knows about obedience is generalized from 40 men who are 20 years old <laughs> to 50 years old from New Haven, Connecticut oh. and surrounding communities. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. No, that, that does sound very generalizable to the other, at the time, what, six and a half billion humans? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All of the subjects in this experiment were obtained by either newspaper advertisement or direct mail solicitation. <laughs> and if you remember anything else that Milgram did, he is um, credited with starting the six degrees of separation of like sending a letter and seeing how many people it has to change hands <laughs> with to get to your Kevin Bacon, right? <laughs> So he was into letter writing this whole time. He loved writing letters. And all of these subjects thought they were participating in a memory study, like right. I said, at Yale University. So on the grounds at Yale University. Mm. So not in like a shady back alley, not right. in <laughs> some business downtown. This was at a center for learning with an impeachable, unimpeachable reputation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I bet that's important. It. Yeah. Yes, it is very important. <laughs> um, there were postal clerks, teachers, salesmen, engineers, laborer, and the education varied from not having finished elementary school all the way up to doctorates and Ooh. professional degrees. Oh, wow. Okay. And they were paid $4.50, which an internet calculator that I have not vetted at all said is about $45 in today's money. So they got okay. $45 right. or $4.50. You know, okay, for an experiment done on 40 men. <laughs> from New Haven, Connecticut. From New Haven, Connecticut and or surrounding areas. This is, I mean, they did do some consideration of making it slightly more representative than, for example, the Dunning-Kruger stuff, which was all undergrads in an intro to psych class. Yes. So, okay. All right. It could be better, obviously, but could be a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. And table one in the paper is just talking about this distribution, and it's a relatively even distribution across profession and across age, so it's very spread out um, all right. of Good. those qualities. Good. Uh, they performed the study at Yale University in an elegant 
Interaction Laboratory. <laughs> chose the word elegant. elegant. I don't know what an elegant laboratory is, but I hope to see one one day. The next time you publish something, can you describe it as having been done in an elegant laboratory? No, because my laboratory is not elegant, so I would be lying. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want to get that note from a reviewer, too, asking you to prove that it was an elegant lab. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the person who played the experimenter or the person who played the person standing there in a lab coat saying, you must continue administering the shocks, was played by a 31-year-old high school teacher of biology. Okay. His manner was impassive, quote-unquote, and his appearance was somewhat stern, and he was dressed in a gray technician's Coat. So they fully went down to the drama department <laughs> and they're like, dress this man as if he was an elegant researcher. Although rather than trying to get an actor to, um, you know, be impassive and somewhat stern, they just got, you know, a high school biology teacher. And they're mm-hmm. just like, act like you. And he's like, can do. So... <laughs> And then the victim or the person receiving the fake shocks was played by a 47-year-old accountant. He was trained for the role of receiving the shocks. Okay. He was, quote, of Irish-American stock, whom most observers found mild-mannered and likable. So the victim was Irish-American. He was likable. And he was mild-mannered. That's amazing. I'm very happy for those details. <laughs> <laughs> the detail section is like over half of this paper. It is so detailed. So the biography of him was uh, in keeping with his own style. Absolutely. 100,000%. <laughs> they would be best buds and write very long letters to each other. <laughs> So each experiment, the experiment was run 40 times, and each experiment only had one naive subject, one of the 40 males from New Haven, Connecticut. (laughs) Right. And then the victim, and the victim was the same for every experiment, so there was no variation of the victim. Okay. And at the beginning of every study, there was text read off that was the same, so I'm going to read the text. Okay. And it was, quote, But actually, we know very little about the effect of punishment on learning because almost no truly scientific studies have been made of it in human beings. Mm -hmm. For instance, we don't know how much punishment is best for learning. We don't know how much difference it makes as to who is giving the punishment, whether an adult learns best from a younger or an older person than himself, or many things of that sort. So in the study, we're bringing together a number of adults of different occupations and ages, and we're asking some of them to be teachers and some to be learners. We want to find out just what effect different people have on each other as teachers and learners, and also which effect punishment will have on the situation. Therefore, I'm going to ask one of you to be the teacher here tonight and one of you to be the learner. Do either of you have any preference? Hmm. And then, here's the trickery. Yeah. The, the subjects drew slips of paper from a hat to determine, quote-unquote, who would be the teacher and who would be the learner. Ah. But it was rigged. Right. Both slips of paper said teacher. And teacher yeah. is the person administering the shock. 
And then after the drawing, the teacher and the learner, the subject and the person pretending to be shocked, were taken to the room, and the learner was strapped into an electric chair. Whoa. <laughs> did, did, did the teacher see this happen? Yeah, they were both brought into this room okay. so that the, the person administering the shocks would see yeah. there's actually an electric chair. The person is actually strapped to the electric chair. Yeah. And then the person who was doing the learning, the actor in the situation, had an electrode attached to their wrist. Yeah. And the um, teacher was told that an electrode paste would be applied to avoid blisters and burns. Whoa. Wow. Nice detail. Uh, mm hmm. And then the subjects were told that the electrode was attached to the shock generator in the adjoining room. So the shock generator that went from 15 to 450 megavolts. One of the things that I'm curious about here is the studies we've looked at before have not involved this sort of deception. Yeah. And that is that sort of a new thing at this point? Yes, and it's a big deal. Okay. Okay. It's a really big deal. That's like the biggest, uh, one of the biggest controversies about this experiment is that it was critical to deceive the subject right. yeah. as part of the experiment. Right. And, and at a certain point, this just becomes the thing. It becomes de rigueur in, in social psychology. <laughs> it, it just becomes the thing that is done. And so it, it's interesting that this also kind of kicks off that social psychology, I don't know, trope, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And I'll talk about it after we go through this paper. But the aftermath of the paper and of his work was really focused on um, the credulity of the study and deceiving the subjects of the study and if that is okay to do or not. That was a big question at the time. So uh, his funding hinged on that, his right to publish hinged on that. He did public debates about if this was okay or not. So after we go through the paper, I'll talk a little bit about some of the aftermath. Great. Okay. Cool. And in order to improve the credibility, the experimenter declared in response to a question by the learner that although the shocks can be painful, they cause no permanent tissue damage. So every subject, all 40 of the men from New Haven, Connecticut, were told that the shocks are painful, but they cause no tissue damage. Mm, okay. So then um, the next thing can get a little bit tedious to explain, but they did a paired association learning task where the subject, the person administering the shocks, read a series of word pairs to the learner. So like apple red. Okay. And then they read the first word of the pair along with four terms and the learner or the person receiving the shocks was supposed to correctly identify which word was paired with that first word. Right. And at this point, the person administering the shocks or the real subject of the experiment couldn't see the learner. So there was mm. a box that would light up with one of the four answers, like A, B, C, D. Right. And that would be how the learner communicated with the teacher or the person administering the shocks. Okay. Um. Every time the learner got a question wrong, the person administering the shocks or the teacher would go up 15 volts, so it hit the next switch up. And like I said, each section of shocks was marked 
with increasing severity. So right. it went from slight shock to moderate shock to strong shock, very strong shock, intense shock, <laughs> extreme intensity shock, <laughs> danger, severe shock. And the two switches after danger, severe shock were just marked <laughs> XXX and XXX. So they really played up the s- sliding scale or the increasing intensity over time. That's amazing. They're making some really nice touches here. The yeah. Right. We're not even going to tell you how bad this is. It's just don't do it. And like the detail of we're going to make sure that even though you shock them extraordinarily, they're not going to get blisters. Like mm-hmm. there's some nice details in this. They're really drama llamas. They're really like performance. <laughs> yeah. Right. Performance theater people. Right. Um, because they also had a sound. Um, upon depressing a switch, a pilot light corresponding to each switch was illuminated in bright red. An electric buzzing was heard. Wow. Um, an electric blue light was enabled, labeled voltage energizer to show that it was like ramping up and energized wow. and could be administered. Yeah. There was a dial on the voltage meter that swung to the right when yeah. it was depressed. Oh, like wow. There's a whole bunch of sound and light and movement that accompanied each click. So it wasn't, it had an effect. Like every action had effects to reinforce that something real is happening here. Yeah, wow. Is there information about who built this thing? I think they built it. I think um, Milgram had like a research assistant that built it with him. You know, my partner was a prop master for 20 some years. Uh, for, Did she build this? For th- well, Which- what, what, I'm, what I'm seeing here is like, there's like a million choices that are being made here that are all really, really good. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're really, I, I have seen what goes into, in fact, um, she at one point did create a, it was, it was an execution machine for, um, oh my goodness. yeah, yeah. Uh, for what's the thing? Lethal injection. That's, that's the word. And, mm-hmm. and like, Rigging it up to do all of this stuff where the dials move and the fluids flow and things like that is really complicated. So mm-hmm. I'm in, in order to work well, it takes a lot of devotion. My point is they're putting as much work into prop design as they are into experimental design here. And that's Do you know where your partner was in nineteen sixty-three? <laughs> As to their whereabouts, can you verify <laughs> that <laughs> that she was not a confederate of Stanley Milgram? Was she in New Haven, Connecticut? Does she think fondly back to her days in New Haven, Connecticut? I I don't have evidence that she wasn't. <laughs> like I said, I'm I'm as impressed by their theatrical elements as I am by the experiment itself at this point. Yeah. And we're not even done yet. There's still more. There's still more. <laughs> yeah. The generator itself had a label that said shock generator type ZLB Dyson Instrument Company, what? Waltham, Massachusetts. That is awesome. I But I wonder if Dyson, the company that now makes like all those hair products and hand dryer <laughs> products. Yeah. Did they are they an offshoot of the Milgram experiments? <laughs> Uh, that is awesome. They they really sold this. Mm-hmm. And in addition, every subject, so every person who was administering the shocks and was deceived as part of this experiment, received a 45-volt sample shock so that they knew 
that the generator actually worked and actually administered shocks. So they were given a little test 45 volt shock, which is quite low in terms of the total scale of shocks that they could receive. But they actually, they actually did give the participant a shock. Oh, interesting. Wow. That's really, they do a lot to play up the reality of this. However, the only thing that sticks for me is if the point is to test learning, why would they have someone off the street administering the shocks? Like if, 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 if well, I, they were told that they were seeing if it mattered the relationship oh, of the two people to each other. Yes, of the to you each did other. say that. You did say that. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm back in. I was, I was having, a, <laughs> <laughs> this was the only part where I was going to call BS on their, on their experimental design. Like this doesn't track. This is, there's a plot hole I found here, but no, you, okay. They, they get that solved too. They covered it. Yeah. It's yeah. Covered. Oh, terrific. Okay. I'm back in. Okay, so the subject, or the 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut, (laughs) were told to shock the victim, the fake victim, every time the victim gets an answer wrong, and every wrong answer moved one higher on the shock generator. And the subject, the 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut, were told to announce which voltage level they were administering before they administered it okay. and Milgram said that this was to emphasize to the person administering the shock so they kept track in their mind yeah. of how much shock yeah. they were doing yeah yeah right they also did a preliminary or rigged run so that the subject did a good job on that run so they saw what a successful run looked yeah. like yeah and then they started the real test where the subjects are given that list and they're told you have to repeat this list over and over until the learner has learned every pair mm. on this list correctly. Right. The learner or the actor is given a predetermined set of responses. So the actor yeah. is making no decisions here whatsoever. Right. And they were told to, or it was set up so that they gave three wrong answers to every correct answer. And we know from gambling and stuff like that, that having that interspersed victory, basically, is extremely reinforcing. Right. Um, so they did a good job setting that up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, once again, they, they know their behaviorism. Mm-hmm. And there was no vocal response or no protest from the learner until they reached the 300-volt shock. So going from 15 volts to 300 volts... They heard nothing, not any response except for the flashing lights I and see. the buzzing. Yeah. And then once um, they hit 300 volts, the learner pounded on the wall Ooh. in between them because they couldn't see each other. Right. And um, this could be heard by the subject, the 40 men from Connecticut. <laughs> and then after that, the learner's answers no longer appeared on the panel. So it was this like drama right. where. Did something happen? Did the learner have a heart attack? Right. Did the learner fall out of the electric chair? Did the learner like hit their head and they're dead on the other side of the wow. wall? That sort of thing. The subjects are then told to continue administering um, the test. So the administrator, the guy in the lab jacket, the gray lab jacket, right? the test administrator said that the absence of a response from the learner is a wrong answer. So you have to continue doing the shocks. Right. And the subjects were told to wait five to 10 seconds and then sh- increase the shock as normal. Right. The learner would pound on the wall again at the 315 volt shock okay. and then is completely silent, doesn't answer any oh. more questions, doesn't make any more sounds. 
And if you remember, this goes up to 450. Oh, so wow. we're only at 315. Okay. There's a ton of time in between. It's nice to be able to think about the test design on this one because it's not something that's just horrific going on. Like with, with <laughs> Watson, like it feels ghoulish to think about, oh yeah, this is really well designed. They really thought of it because he's, you know, torturing a baby. Literal torture of a baby. Yeah. Right. But for this one, it's, you know, having it go all the way from 300 up to, or, or from 315 all the way up to 450 with no response gives you just a ton of ceiling. So mm-hmm. you're not going to top out too fast and just, you know, you'll really be able to uh, hopefully uh, make distinctions between people with, I mean, th- yeah, this is, I don't know, this, I'm, I'm very excited and impressed by, by the design of it. Who knows if, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so your team, Milgram. I, I, I get the cleverness of the study and I don't think it hurt anyone, hopefully. Oh, Strong words. <laughs> I, I it don't certainly think... hurt people, but we will get into oh, that no. later. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. So at the point where the actor is pounding on the wall and then ceasing response, it was most frequently seen that the subjects or the people administering the test to the teachers, they would turn to the test administrator and they would protest. They would not want to continue ah, on. I see. And the test administrator was given a series of prompts that he would read in order. And at any point, if the uh, teacher refused to go on, it would reset to the first one mm. and continue prod one, prod two, prod three, prod four. So, and if they continued after prod three, it would reset back to prod one. Right. And the prods were number one, please continue. Number two, the experiment requires that you continue. Number three, it is absolutely essential that you continue. Uh And number four, you have no other choice. You must go Mm, on. Okay. And if the subject didn't continue shocking after prod four, then the experiment was terminated. The level of shock that they were at was considered the end point of the experiment. Interesting. Okay. So did, did Milgram record the kind of verbal protestations of the teacher was that also relevant even though it wasn't kind of officially scored as obedience or defiance yeah so uh milgram had both quantitative the shock level and qualitative aspects to the experiment so every um almost every experiment was recorded there was also an impartial observer there was a mirror that was a uh what is it called? A one-way mirror right. where the observer could see yeah. the subject, yeah. but the subject couldn't see the observer. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So the observer was making observations at the time. So the total number of people in this experiment was like a high number of people, even though most people only mention the person receiving the shocks and the person right. being shocked. Wow. Yeah. This is, this sounds expensive. It, I assume that it was, yeah. <laughs> because also with qualitative research, it's not just a number yeah. that you write down. You have to spend all of your time going through yeah. everything and the picking out uh, common themes among these 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut yeah. and surrounding area. Yeah. But yes, they did record the protestations. They recorded the nature of the protestations, that sort of thing. Yeah. A lot of the subjects asked about injury and if the learner was being injured. Mm. And the test administrator was allowed to say, although the shocks may be painful, 
There is no permanent tissue damage, <laughs> oh so please go on. <laughs> permanent tissue damage is really... Specific. I know, yes. wow. And if the subject said that the learner didn't want to go on, so if the subject uh, made claims for the learner, the uh, test administrator, the person in the gray coat, was allowed to say, whether the learner likes it or not, you must go on until he has learned all the word pairs correctly. <laughs> so please go on. Wow. And that was the same for everybody. There is no deviation right. from those uh, phrases. Right. Um, so that's the experimental setup. And then after um, the person stopped shocks, after they made it out of the four prod uh, maze. Right. <laughs> um, that was the end of the experiment and they were, quote, de-hoaxed or they were debriefed. Yeah. They were told what the actual experiment was and they were given an interview at the end of the experiment. Mm -hmm. That was a very open-ended, uh, unprompted, it wasn't like answer these multiple choice questions. Right. It was just a sort of dialogue or conversation that went whenever, wherever the subject wanted it to go. Okay. So after the interview, the subjects would leave the laboratory in a state of well-being, according to me. <laughs> a friendly reconciliation was arranged between the subject and the victim. Yeah. An effort was made to reduce any tensions that arose as a result of the experiment. So they showed the um, subjects, the learner, that he was alive, that he was not actually harmed, that there was no shocks administered, that he hadn't fallen over and hit his head. Sure. Um, and they did this informational interview um, at the end to record their thoughts and feelings. When you explain it that way, I begin to see where the damage might have taken place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they th like they thought they were harming people. Uh, yeah, some, yeah. People, you some people. You reconcile them with the learner, but you didn't reconcile them with themselves. <laughs> with God. <laughs> with, yeah. Oh, I get that you weren't injured, but I thought you were, and look what yeah. I did. Oh, dear. Yep. Yeah, that's, this seems insufficient. This seems like the underdeveloped part of this study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Milgram truly didn't believe that any subject was harmed. He thought that he was doing very good and uh, shining light on a dark place, right? Like he yeah, thought that yeah. he was revealing something fundamental totally. about humans that we didn't know before. Right. So he thought that people appreciated being told this about themselves, oh. having this revealed to them. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he should have asked someone about that. <laughs> that do people want to be told nasty things about themselves? Yes or no? Yeah, wow. If only he knew anyone who could have helped him sort out how people uh, respond emotionally or, dare I say, psychologically <laughs> to uncomfortable things in, I don't know, social circumstances. If only he knew someone who was an expert in that who might have helped if him out. If only he worked in a social psychology if department. Only, if only he had some <laughs> colleagues who could have... Giving them some guidance. <laughs> so before performing the experiment and analyzing the data from the experiment, Milgram asked a bunch of his colleagues and 14 Yale psychology seniors to guess the distribution of obedience. <laughs> and he published that data as part of this paper. Okay, this makes it worse. <laughs> he was taking bets. Okay. He was taking bets. Yeah, okay. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the seniors guessed that 
from zero to three percent of people would administer the highest shock available. They said either nobody would go up to triple X or just one straggler would shock up to triple X. Okay. And a lot of the colleagues, um, Milgram's said from conversations also predicted that nobody would do the triple X shock. Nobody would make it to the end of the experiment. Wow. Nobody would go that high. And they said that the highest subjects would go was very strong shock and nobody would go beyond that. So here's the part where you guess the outcomes. <laughs> what do you think the outcomes of this experiment were? My guess is that if they were correct, this would not be a famous study. Uh, (laughs) my guess is that if we discovered people are good, they won't follow orders that harm others, that Stanley Milgram would be an unknown, (laughs) (laughs) uh, he would have, he would have quit social psychology and gone into community theater. That's my guess. (laughs) He was already in community theater. He was already doing production. He would have committed full time. So how many subjects do you think gave the highest shock available, gave triple X shock? Should we, should we have this be a cliffhanger? Because one, we should stop recording for a second to make sure we save files. And also I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Let me see if I know how to stop this. Okay. So, I'm gonna- But yes, big cliffhanger. So <sighs> predicted outcomes. How many subjects do you think administered the highest shock? How many subjects out of 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut? 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut. I think that 10 out of 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut went to the highest level. Triple X. Double triple X. Double triple X. And 450. What sort, of <laughs> what sort of behaviors do you think these subjects showed as they were going through the experiment? Ooh. Yeah, the qualitative part. Uh, mm-hmm. I th- I think I think that they were they did show concern, so they they weren't just kind of heartlessly <laughs> flipping switches and going or cackling or anything like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I think they showed concern and were like worried about the health of the learner, uh, but gave in when prodded. And what sort of um physical behaviors do you think they were doing during this? Because there was the whole observer that was watching the shock administrator, the subject, right. the whole time. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I, I would hope that they were like hesitant to flip those last switches and they were like, you know, wincing and showing, you know, empathy. Like, I mean, they're men from New Haven, so they're not going to cry, but <laughs> I, 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 want to, I want to assume that they are distressed. They show signs of distress or of fear or of maybe even remorse. All right. Your prediction is 10 out of the 40 did double, triple X shock. Yep. And they were remorseful. They were uh, hesitant. They were protesting and not wanting to administer shocks. Right. So in the results, Milgram says with confidence and conviction that with few exceptions, subjects were convinced of the reality of the experimental <laughs> situation. I'm a very good actor, he said. Yes, my, scr- my script believed- was solid. 
My props My were excellent. My script was solid. <laughs> Opening night went really, really well. <laughs> this theater production is great. Everyone believed it. <laughs> so we'll get back to this. But Milgram states, and Milgram believed, even though he was questioned throughout his whole career of how much people actually believed that they were administering shocks to another right. person. Yeah. Milgram said that there were very few people. He didn't put a number to it, but he said there were very few people <laughs> who didn't believe they were actually administering shots. Okay, all right. And in the um, post-experimental interview, uh, subjects were asked, how painful to the learner were the last few shocks that you administered to him? And it went from a zero, where they thought it was not painful at all, to a 14, extremely painful, and the modal response was 14 out of 14, that people oh. thought that the last shock that they gave to the learner was extremely painful. Oh, okay. And the mean was 13.42. Oh, so most okay. people said <laughs> yeah. 14 out of 14. Some people said a little bit lower than 14. Right. But this um, interview makes it seem that the people thought they were administering a painful shock to the learner. Yeah, yeah, ex- extremely painful shock. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they knew what they were doing. They thought that it was real and that they were administering shocks to yeah. the learner. Okay, okay, fair enough. And the observer reported the behaviors observed during the experiment of the subjects, the 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut. And Milgram says that a large number of cases of degree of tension was observed. So okay. he said that this is rarely seen in socio physiological studies, laboratory studies, and subjects were observed to sweat, tremble, stutter, bite their lips, groan, and dig their fingernails into their oh, flesh. Okay. Like yeah. this is like biblical rending <laughs> of garments. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean th- this does give some credence to Milgram's statement that people bought it. And 14 of the 40 subjects showed nervous laughter and smiling. Oh. And the laughter was bizarre. And (laughs) I don't believe this at all, but this is what he says. He said that full-blown, uncontrollable seizures were observed in three of the 40 subjects. Oh, okay. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't think it's real. I don't think (laughs) that actually happened. Right. He says that it happened. Okay. (laughs) He said, on one occasion, we observed a seizure so violently convulsive, it was necessary to call a halt to the experiment. The subject was a 46-year-old encyclopedia salesman. (laughs) The encyclopedia salesman was embarrassed by his untoward and uncontrollable behavior. Wow. (laughs) Um, And subjects made known in their post-experimental interview that they were not sadistic and the laughter didn't mean they were enjoying shocking the victim, that it was like a nervous laughter and uncontrollable laughter. Right. So that's the qualitative we see. Rending of garments, right. we see biting of lips, we see digging fingernails into their own flesh. We see unhinged encyclopedia salesmen. 
the encyclopedia salesmen are off the hook. They're out of control. They need their wives to come pick them up with a little sandwich so they can recover. We got to get these encyclopedia salesmen like back in line. We can't have this yeah. happening. I, I, I hope that was the takeaway of this study is we really need to deal with the encyclopedia salesmen. And, and as I understand it, that is why Wikipedia is now a thing. Because encyclopedia salesmen are just so unreliable. They were just so emotional. Yeah. They were convulsing so violently. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that's a fact. So if you remember, they grouped the shock levels from slight shock to triple double X severe danger right. mega shock. Right. And no subject, none of the 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut, stopped <laughs> administering before shock level 20, which was the 300 volt shock level. Okay. And the 300 volt is where the actor banged on the wall and started doing that performance. So nobody stopped before then. Okay. And if you look at the chart, 300 is the end of the intense shock. Right. And that's where you move from intense shock into extreme (laughs) intensity shock. Right. Okay. I mean, they've been reassured that there is no physical harm coming to the person. No tissue damage. Oh, that, that's I think fair. it was very that's fair. specific that's fair. that they said yeah. tissue damage. No, that's right? fair. That's fair. They were reassured that there'd be no tissue damage. We've seen that there are, are um, precautions against blistering of the skin. Mm-hmm. And the person isn't responding. Are they not responding at all up to that point? There's no like ouch or anything before that? They can't see each other. They can't hear each other. Milgram went on to do more variations of this experiment, including where the person administering the shock could see the victim of the shocks. And obviously there was decreased obedience if you can actually see who you're harming. Right. Um, But for this experiment, nobody stopped before intense shock and only five people stopped after they heard the banging on the wall. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh wow! I yeah, I would have hoped for a few to stop before three hundred, but I get why you wouldn't. But I would have expected kind of everyone to stop once the person bangs <laughs> on the wall and is like, "You're you're killing me here," or whatever he's like. You know that. So you're a very normal senior Yale I am. psychology student. I am. Yeah, I would have expected. <laughs> I would have. Um. So four refused to go on after. Um, the second shock, if you remember going from 300 to 315, yeah. there was the second pounding on the wall and four people stopped. So nine out of 40 people stopped um, based around that acting. Right. And then <laughs> 26 people went all the way to the double, triple X, 26? 26 of 40 people went all the way to the end. They went to, we're not even going to tell you how bad this is. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. Also, the person has not even responded for, how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, four, for eight shocks, the person hasn't even responded. Mm-hmm. They are obviously dead. <laughs> <laughs> At the elegant Yale University <laughs> Laboratory, they're just killing off experimental subjects left and right. Uh, 
So the people who stopped are termed the defiant people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the 26 people who went all the way to the end were considered the obedient people. Right. So even though it was 14 of the 40 who stopped, they still only stopped when they were in the extreme intensity shock, danger, severe shock phase. Right. And then once you entered danger, severe shock, there's nobody who stopped after the 390 like if you made it to 390 volts you're going all the way up to 450 oh, wow. volts oh. nobody stopped in between there oh okay so 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 they they did run into a ceiling like it's it it seemed like they were giving themselves a lot of headroom here but yeah if you've got 26 people all hitting the top yeah you you kind of you're losing some precision mhm this is a full ceiling effect yeah where there's no um yeah real distribution of subjects right here. right and qualitatively, uh, Milgram reported some of the things that the defiant people said. And one defiant person said, oh, I can't go on with this. This isn't right. It's a hell of an experiment. The guy is suffering in there. No, I don't want to go on. This is crazy. And then another subject said, he's banging in there. I'm going to chicken out. I'd like to continue, but I can't do that to a man. I'm sorry, I can't do that to a man. I'll hurt his heart. You take your check. No, I really couldn't do it. And then he also stopped. Oh, wow. I couldn't do this. So importantly. I couldn't do this to a man. I'm sorry, I can't do this to a man. I'll hurt his heart. Sounds like something from like a (laughs) rom-com. And they fall in love when they meet at the post- the post experimental right. interview. Right. And, and, and like, should we write this? We should write, write Stan- Stanley. Um, <laughs> yes. Yep. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. If there's like a way to work in a classic uh, two dates on the same night thing, except it's two experiments on the same day. So he has to run between labs and be changed clothes in between, changed from a, uh, a gray lab coat to a white one. Right. I, I agree. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that because <laughs> I think it's so brilliant. There's nothing more to be said. Uh, We'll have to come up with a title. How about like uh, 41st Shocks? <laughs> so, um, the people who were obedient, many of them displayed the same behaviors that the defiant subjects did, but they continued on with the shocks. They didn't stop, even though they showed nervousness, okay. they showed uh, being upset. They mopped their brows, right. they rubbed their fingers over their eyes, or they nervously fumbled with cigarettes. So these people were allowed to smoke because it was 1963. <laughs> In this elegant laboratory, they were smoking as they were uh, doing these learning experiments. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Anyone listening to this who is under the age of 30, yeah, you could smoke inside, and also there were encyclopedias. <laughs> um. So those are the results. 26 of 40 subjects did double, triple X mega death Wow. Shots. That's, I mean, again, it had to be high. Otherwise, this wouldn't really be an experiment that anyone would care about. But 26 is more mm-hmm. than I would have expected. And as you said, if you went past 390, you went all the way to the top. And in fact, mostly if you went past... Any of the danger, yeah, severe, high, yeah, super you, mega You were just intensity. going all the way. Like there really, mm-hmm. there weren't very many people dropping out after 315. So, wow. And one important thing I forgot to mention is they were given the money at the very beginning 
of the experiment and oh. they were told no matter what the outcome is you get to keep the money that, so they were not told wow. that they had to go all the way to the end to keep the yeah. money they were told you showed up here today therefore you get the money you get to keep it there's nothing you can do that will make us take the money away from so, you so again this from an experimental design standpoint that's that's important that's really yeah. important from a psychologically torturing your participant standpoint, that's way worse. <laughs> They're like, I could have left with the money at any point, but I kept at going. At any point, yeah. What, who am I? I, I? Earlier, I was praising the, the experimental design, not realizing that every good design choice they made was hurting the participants. I, I, I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah. And um, this is, it was certainly closely watched because of how, famous it became yeah. and a lot of the conversation around it is a uh, part of the protection that we have for experimental subjects oh. now is decisions that came as um following this experiment oh, okay. going on okay so that's it in terms of data reporting we have the qualitative reporting of the emotional state right. of these subjects and then we have the data that 26 <laughs> of the 40 men from new Haven, connecticut <laughs> will shock people to double, triple X mega shock. As, as long as they are asked to do it by a biology teacher in an elegant laboratory. In an elegant laboratory wearing a beautiful, certainly a beautiful gray laboratory. It, I, I imagine that. Crisp. Right? Clean. Oh, I, Just a beautiful like blue gray. And you know I was going to say, you don't see the gray lab coat that much. No, you really it's, don't. I think that should, should have actually been the big takeaway from this study is we need more gray lab need- coats. <laughs> Nobody trusts white lab coats. Yeah, we need gray. We need gray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that wasn't what Milgram took away oh, from the study. Weird. Okay, but bizarrely. Okay. Well, yeah. let's hear what he had to say. I guess he highlighted two surprising findings or things that shocked him as the outcome. And the first finding was the sheer strength of obedient tendencies, because none of the Yale senior Yale students predicted this outcome. Right. None of the colleagues that Milgram talked to prior to initiating the experiments predicted this outcome. Nobody would have predicted that 26 of 40 people in a laboratory setting would shock someone to the point of maybe certain death. Right, yeah. Um, The observers, the people behind the one-way mirror, were also being observed by Milgram. (laughs) (laughs) And the observers would often utter expressions of disbelief, so they couldn't even believe what they were seeing. Again, according to Milgram. Milgram is the only author on this paper. He's the only person writing this. Um, And he is making all these claims, so I'm just reporting what he said. He said that the observers couldn't believe what was happening. He couldn't believe what was happening Senior Yale psychology <laughs> students couldn't believe what was happening. Milgram's colleagues couldn't believe what was happening. This was just absolutely unfathomable right. to everybody. Right. right. He, didn't, he didn't report any of the qualitative data he collected on his qualitative data collectors? <laughs> um, we'll get to that, but he has... <laughs> A massive archive, just chock full of data. Oh, wow. And people are now making careers out of reanalyzing and analyzing data. So I will go through some of that (laughs) after we finish the discussion. Okay. 
But I'm sure he was taking his own heart rate as he was observing the observer who was observing <laughs> the person giving the shocks. Like everything is being observed. That's... We have a pan opticon situation. <laughs> Nothing is out of the sight of God. <laughs> uh, that's terrific. <laughs> and the second surprising finding from the study, the first was, holy shit, people are way more obedient in this setting than we thought they would be. Right. The second finding is the extraordinary tension generated by the procedure. So Milgram really emphasized how physically and expressively upset these subjects were, the 40 men from Connecticut. Right. And Milgram said, I observed a mature and initially poised businessman enter the laboratory smiling and confident. Within 20 minutes, he was reduced to a twitching stuttering wreck who was rapidly approaching the point of a nervous collapse. He would constantly pull his earlobe and twist his hands. At one point, he pushed his fist into his forehead and muttered, oh God, let's stop it. And yet he continued to respond to every word of the experimenter and obeyed until the end. So he really emphasized that people were outwardly showing... Signs of nervousness, right. showing that they didn't want sure. to obey, that there was this tension between what they were doing and what they were told to do and what they wanted to right. do, which was not hurt people. Sure, sure. Mm. So those are the two findings. Right. Do you believe in the uncontrollable seizures <laughs> that these seizures happened? Given his demonstrated penchant for drama, this literally reads like bad theater. Mm -hmm. that, that the, what, what did we say he did? Pulled on his earlobe, twisted his hands, pushed his fist into his forehead and muttered, Oh God, let it stop. No one ever said that. This, this is... <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a museum in Las Vegas that I went to. I didn't know about it ahead of time, but it was called the Zach Bagans Haunted Museum. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's a guy who apparently is on the show Ghost Hunters. Sure. And he collects haunted items. Sure. And you can't just go to this museum. It's like an experience where you have a guide walking oh. around and they tell you how haunted each nice. thing is. Nice, Yeah. And as I was reading the study, I kept thinking about the Zach Bagans haunted museum. <laughs> yes, yes. Because for every haunted object, the guide would say, people have reported headaches yes, and seizures yes. and bizarre yes. smells and fainting yes. and collapsing after viewing this haunted object. Yeah. And I'm like, there's no difference between the Zach Bagans haunted right, museum right. and this experiment. It's the same. So the, one of the things he really seems to be doing here is not only selling the scenario to his participants, but he's really selling this experiment to the psychological community. Yes. He's, he's got this personal narrative at the beginning, and then throughout he's, yeah, he's reporting people rending their clothing and pressing their skulls and, you know. Gnashing their Right, teeth. yeah. He's really selling this to, to his audience. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems not unlikely that that has some amount to do with the popularity of this study. I mentioned this last time, too, when we were talking about Dunning-Kruger, where they wrote a really good paper. It's got, mm -hmm. it's got jokes. It starts off with, a, with an anecdote. It's just written in a really inviting way, despite whatever you know technical failings it might have. I think also part of it is that 
studies like this can be easily understood outside of the discipline. Mm, so you right. don't have yeah, to be a yeah, social psychologist yeah. to understand obedience to authority. Right. You don't have right. to be a social psychologist to understand that people who don't have any knowledge think they have more knowledge than they have. There's no jargon. There's no discipline-specific knowledge that you need to have to be able to read right. this article and understand it. Right. Especially the fact that this one is so counterintuitive. It's, you know, mm -hmm. nobody would believe that a businessman from New Haven, Connecticut would shock somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the end in the discussion, Milgram went into 13 reasons why people obeyed the test administrator. Ooh. And he listed these off. And I just pulled some out because 13 is so many. <laughs> it, is, it, it is a lot. <laughs> but he said, it's important that the study happened at Yale. Yeah. That has an unimpeachable okay, reputation. Yeah. It's important that the study was for a worthy purpose, uh -huh. advancing knowledge about learning and memory. So the people administering shocks thought they were doing right. science. They thought yeah. they were doing real science that would really help sure. people. The subject believed that the victim or the person receiving the shocks voluntarily submitted to the system ah. that they showed up just the same as the subject showed up. Interesting. That the subject was there voluntarily and importantly that he would be breaking his word to stop the experiment. Interesting. That he'd be going back on, he said he would participate, but he um, didn't want to participate anymore. Okay. There was a sense of obligation because they were paid this amount of oh. money, the $45, that they felt obligated to continue performing the work that they were paid oh, for. Oh, interesting. Okay. It was important that they felt that it was randomly assigned, that they could have been the learner, but instead they were the teacher because of that rigged hat pull at the beginning. So, so being able to identify with the person makes them more likely to torment them, is his supposition. That's, yeah, part of his, he's posing these kind of like, here's a whole bunch of reasons that could be contributing to the outcome. Or, or put another way, here are 13 further experiments that I could do. And he fully did all of <laughs> okay. those experiments, yes. Um, every variable is a variable that he tweaked. So he did different locations. He had the test administrator wearing different clothing. He had the proximity. Wait, they got rid of the gray lab coats? Yes. Oh, I, and people didn't obey if there was no gray lab. That coat. is, that is, <laughs> ugh, I can't, I cannot support anything done without a gray lab coat from here on out. No, it proved the necessity of. The oh, that's gray true. Lab coat. Okay, I am going to ask my department head to buy me a gray lab coat. Probably multiple. Yeah, right? no, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't want them to. Well, I would have to do experiments to find out if they smell horrible because I've been wearing it for three years. If that. <laughs> improves or I, we'll, we'll have to get Milgram on that. that that sounds like more grant money does the smell of the lab coat does it yeah. matter yeah. yeah it was important that the subject was told that the shocks are painful but not dangerous right. it was important that the learner continued answering questions even after the shocks mm -hmm. so they continued participating so the learner wasn't tapping out until they supposedly died. right yeah <laughs> but um it, then it made it so that the subject didn't want to tap out. I see. I see. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and and just more discussion of the tension of not wanting to admit that they were doing harm and quitting would be them admitting that they were administering painful shots to another human person. Sure. So what do, you, what do you think? That's it. That's the whole study. <laughs> you know, one of the things that occurs to me, this 
could also be an explanation why someone like Watson would torture a small child. This is, this, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm being serious. This is, Watson feels an obligation to do it. He's been paid to do this. This is his job. Yes, he thinks he's hurting someone, but it's for a worthy cause. Um, it's for advancing science. Right, yeah. So a lot of this seems as much like a justification for the experimenter to do horrible things as for a participant. And I, do, I don't know if uh, Milgram, it seems like where Milgram really falls down is in the sort of meta-criticism, like cr- criticism of his own work. Uh, yeah. that, that, so I don't, I don't feel confident that he would have had that level of introspection or self-reflection. But that's one of the things that occurs to me pretty quickly is that list of conditions applies to researchers themselves. Yeah, for sure. And you're absolutely right that he was not self-critical in that way. He was very entrenched in believing that he was doing a good right, thing. Right, right. And like I mentioned, he had public debates where people debated the outcome of his experiment. There were people contemporary to him. So in like 1964 mm. starting, people were publishing criticisms okay. of his conclusions sure. of the yeah, study I mean, and questioning how generalizable yep, the study yep, was. yeah. If it only applied to a laboratory setting or if this could actually be applied, like he's trying to state to humankind that humans are very obedient. Right. So Milgram died at a very young age. He was only 51, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then many years after his death, Yale University released an archive. They archived his work and it's a massive, huge archive that people can go and... Um, research and pulled data from and um, he taped so many things he wrote down so many yeah. things and there he had 266 linear feet of oh, wow. files yeah in 424 wow boxes. yeah that just like he was he perpetuated his own career by publishing every iteration yeah he guaranteed the careers of several additional researchers just by generating that much stuff. Yeah. So the article that I read about this is um, called Credibility and Incredulity in Milgram's Obedience Experiments, a Real Analysis of an Unpublished Ooh, Test. Okay. And this paper was published in 2020, um, and it was published in Social Psychology Quarterly, and I thought the keywords were hilarious, so I put the keywords in. <laughs> okay. And the keywords are dramaturgical credibility, <laughs> yep, okay. experimental deception, yep. methodological dilemmas in assessing <laughs> obedience, <laughs> obedience to authority, and standing <laughs> And anyone who's not familiar, the keywords are words that authors who write the papers pick out to try and generate traffic to the papers. So people would be searching for experimental deception yeah, that and then this paper would yeah, show yeah. up. Yeah. I wonder how many people are searching for dramaturgical credibility. <laughs> right? Like I thought it was so funny that these keywords were deemed to be relevant and important enough that these are the selected keywords. Although I, and Stanley Milgram is the last keyword. Like, eh, who cares? <laughs> people are searching for dramaturgical Although I will admit to, at times, treating the keywords as a way to amuse myself where I will throw in (laughs) at least one where it's just like something that makes me giggle. So maybe, maybe these researchers in 2020 uh, had a sense of humor about it. I hope they did. 
But they also talked about how many papers have come out reanalyzing this data using the archives. And one sentence just illustrated this to a T. They said, scholarly examination of the material has prompted revelations about the extent and nature of debriefing. Okay. That's yeah. a 2011 publication. Good. Unstandardized experiment protocols. <laughs> that's multiple publications. Okay. Unreported data and misrepresentation of oh. results. That's multiple publications. Yeah. And incongruities in Milgram's conceptual accounts there of the research. Go. And that's yeah. a 2017 <laughs> publication. So people are making their full yeah. careers yeah. off of going through these 424 boxes. Yeah. And reanalyzing all of this data. The nice thing is that Milgram didn't burn his archives. He didn't <laughs> right. throw away his right. archives. His archives aren't under lock and key. Right. People can actually yeah, access them. Yeah, that is them. good. So kudos to Milgram for actually keeping this data around. Yeah. And dying before anyone could, uh, <laughs> dying before he could prevent anyone from accessing it. Right. It's easy to be a little bit cynical as an academic of the publication mill kind of uh, aspect of it, where his value as a researcher is partially measured in the people who get to make careers off of. But at the same time, mm -hmm. less cynically, that is what you should do. You should probably go back and investigate these studies and find out if they were done well. You should you should replicate them. You should critique them. So Yeah, and especially the obedience to authority study, the study that every person yeah. probably this is the most famous study yeah. we've talked oh, about. Undoubtedly, yeah. It is extremely important that we all think that the study found that people are extremely obedient to authority, but upon further examination there are all of these problems cracks in the foundation right, right. of that conclusion. Right. So this 2020 paper said that many current scholarly narratives tend to accept Milgram's assumption that we are all capable of torture <laughs> and murder <laughs> at the behest of a th an authority figure, a conclusion that is transferred uncritically to the general public and prospective students through the textbook industry. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like my experience. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, look at that shade towards the textbook right. industry no, that's... <laughs> in this 2020 article. That is, I, I, again, that does comport with my experience. That conclusion was transferred to me uncritically mm -hmm. through the textbook industry. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, when I learned about this in psychology, I think the conclusion, I don't think we went into, the, we certainly didn't no. read the paper. We didn't go into... Um, the data nope. very much no. at all. And the conclusion was just people are so much more obedient to authority than you would ever think <laughs> that they are. Yeah, yeah. So in specifically this 2020 article, they were examining the degree to which subjects believed the experimental scenario. Right. And then the influence of that belief on the experimental results. Right. So basically they were asking two parts. One did everyone actually believe that they were shocking somebody? Right. And then two, if they didn't believe they were shocking somebody, is that subject different from someone who did believe right. they were no, shocking Right, no, exactly. Somebody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, an interesting caveat and a backup to this. Um, Stanley 
did these interviews and he did these post-experimental interviews, but he didn't believe what his subjects reported to him in the post-experimental interviews. And this came out because in 1962, Milgram ran out of money, so he applied for more grant funding from the National Science Foundation. And the National Science Foundation just happened to have a new director. So he had received grant money under a previous director. And then Robert Hall, the new director, was concerned about the study. So Robert Hall visited Yale and observed the experiments. Okay. And the funding wasn't given and it was terminated out of concern for the welfare of the subjects. Oh, okay. And also the absence of a basic theoretical framework. Oh, that's... Which, sure. Yeah. <laughs> valid concerns. So valid concerns, but also, oh my God, can you imagine receiving a yeah. letter from your director <laughs> saying that you lack a basic theoretical framework? Like, oh not, not to mention lacking basic concern for the welfare of your subjects. <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. that, yeah, you're kind of getting hit from <laughs> all sides right there. Mm-hmm. I imagine I imagine the meeting looked very much like the beginning of uh, Ghostbusters, <laughs> right? Where, where 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 the dean shows up and says, you know, mm-hmm. this university will no longer continue any funding of any kind for your group's activities. But the kids love us, Doctor Beckman. We believe that the purpose of science is to serve mankind. You, however, seem to regard science as some kind of dodge or hustle. Your theories are the worst kind of popular tripe. Your methods are sloppy and your conclusions are highly questionable. You are a poor scientist, Dr. Lincoln. I see. You have no place in this department or in this university. It probably was in the inspiration. For oh, I bet it was. Oh, right. He's shocking people. Oh, my God. It never occurred to me. Obviously <laughs> true. No, so no. I want to assume then that the conversation ended with Robert Hall saying, you are a Poor scientist, Dr. Milgram. <laughs> he wrote it in a letter. Yeah, he went back to the National Science Foundation and he wrote Milgram a letter saying, you're a shit-ass scientist, get your fucking shit wow. together. He said it would have been impossible to assess whether the results were generalizable to real-life situations or were artifacts of a oh, laboratory wow. situation. Okay. How do we know if the situation is really credible to the subjects? Right. It seems likely some of them suspect there was a catch. This may be operating below the level of awareness of the subject. So Hall told Milgram, probably your subjects don't even believe that this is real. Also, if they did believe it is real, this is a laboratory setting. How do you generalize it to the whole world? So Milgram had to stop doing additional experiments, but he got money to send a questionnaire out to subjects that had already gone through the experiment. 85% of the subjects sent back the questionnaire, and he only ever published selective parts of the questionnaire. He said that he would publish the whole thing, but he only published parts that supported his assertions. He never published himself. But obviously we still have the questionnaire because Milgram's kind of a cool guy who kept all of his data and all right, his work. Right, right, right. So in the questionnaire, some of the subjects said that they didn't believe that they were actually hurting people. They didn't believe that it was a real experiment. They thought that this was a setup or a test or there was no real shocking going on. And Milgram dismissed all of that data. And he said that the people were saying that as a defense function... 
and a de facto explanation. Right. He didn't believe that anyone genuinely didn't believe they were shocking the victim. Okay. Well, you know, there's a lot of middle ground in there. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he raises an interesting point, but then to say, therefore, I am confident that they all 100% believed it is, I, I don't think that's supportable. Mm-hmm. And Milgram himself had, at the time, people criticizing the work. So he had one of his research assistants, Marada, go through and record and analyze the level of belief that Uh. subjects had. (laughs) In 18 of the 23 Milgram experiments, the 2020 analysis of all of this data found that people who had more belief that they were actually shocking somebody those people gave lower amounts of shocks than who people who doubted that the shocks right. were real. So someone doubted that they were giving real shocks, they were more likely to go all the way to I the see. end. So that's a brief overview of this 2020 update. But like I said, there have been so many people who have just gone through and pulled out data and analyzed interviews and analyzed experiments and done meta-analysis of all of these experiments to figure out, is there actually anything in the study? Is it telling us anything that's real? Is this all a laboratory artifact? And I don't know that we'll ever actually know, because how do you know? Right. But these 40 men from New Haven, (laughs) some of them, even though they went all the way, and maybe it's the case that they didn't believe it, they still had this reaction of rending their clothes. Like, has it been found that... According that, that, to... Well, right. So, so if there's all this evidence, you know, did they find that these reactions were not real or didn't persist or couldn't be replicated or... So in this 2020 article, they didn't say anything specifically about the reactions, but probably... One of the other dozens of articles that went back and analyzed uh, Milgram's data did an analysis of experimental reactions. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested in that. Because that, you know, that does... So if we assume Milgram is telling the truth about that, then, you know, because it would be interesting to know if these people had this deep reaction to the situation, even though they knew it wasn't real. Um, mm. and yet we're obedient. I don't know. That would, that would be interesting to me. Uh, I don't know if it tells us about it, obedience. I don't know if it tells, but it yeah. tells us maybe something that is interesting. What I guess what I'm saying is that there's interesting results here, but I think it lacks a basic theoretical framework. So <laughs> <laughs> is this where you take off your face and actually you are Robert <laughs> Hall of the National Science Foundation? This is my training for, for admin. <laughs> So that's it for the follow-up study. Basically, uh, Milgram had missing data. Milgram over-exaggerated claims. Milgram didn't fully analyze his data. Milgram selectively analyzed data. Milgram didn't publish all of his data. And on and on and on and on and on. And I read these in the wrong order where I read the 2020 study first and then I went back and I read Milgram's study. So I went into it not believing a single thing that he said. So Milgram said, the lab coat is gray. And I'm like, no, it was probably yellow. It was probably a yellow lab coat. And he was probably lying about it. He was lying uh, about the color of the lab yeah. coat. See, I, yeah, whereas I got the authentic experience of like being drawn in by his, by his narrative mm-hmm. and by the story and by the pageantry of it all. We absolutely have to build one of these boxes that makes like beautiful sounds and whirs and moves levers around. Yeah. 
Yeah. It seems like such an incredible object. And I didn't see anywhere if this object exists in a museum. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere. But I absolutely want to physically see it. Okay, well, like I said, I I, I do live with a experienced prop master. I bet I could get her to build us one of these. We'll have to get this commissioned. (laughs) Maybe maybe we can call Robert Hall and see if he'll he'll fund our recreation. (laughs) Our artistic recreation. (laughs) Okay, are you ready for the actually incredibly legitimate pop culture reference of the day? Yeah, I am. I'm I'm so ready. It's very legitimate. (laughs) And it's actually legitimate. This, This definitely sounds legitimate. This is definitely quite legitimate pop culture reference of the day. <laughs> so multiple movies have been made about Milgram. Like I said. Are any of them rom-coms? A few of them, yeah. Actually, the oh, one wow. we're talking oh, about good. is a rom-com. Do you remember from 1995 uh, the movie about Meg Ryan where she is Einstein's daughter? I, you're making this up. This isn't a real movie. It, the movie is called IQ. I worked in a video store when it came <laughs> out. So so th- we had like 9,000 copies of it because it was guaranteed to be in stock. That's what Hollywood Video mm. did. And so it's our Tim Robbins and Meg Ryan. And the premise was that Meg Ryan was Albert Einstein's like granddaughter, daughter, something like that. Um, that sounds great. And Tim Robbins was an inventor. I can't remember the details. Anyways, I'm imagining that that's what this is. Is It's a rom-com starring Meg Ryan um, or the equivalent. Um, Will, for William Shatner. Starring William Shatner. William Shatner is not the Meg Ryan of our time. <laughs> I, I think that he is. So that's my opinion. You can't question my opinion. Uh, okay, so William Shatner. <laughs> so William Shatner starred in a 1976 made-for-TV movie. Oof. It's available on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. I watched the whole thing. I, you yeah. did. It's like uh, two uh, hours you... long. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but William Shatner plays, of course, the Stanley Milgram character. He's not named Milgram. And everything else oh, is okay. almost directly the same as Milgram's real life. And Milgram even served as right. a consultant on the film. Oh, wow. Uh, and then he died five years later. I don't know if that's related <laughs> at all. I'm just questioning and putting that question out there. Right, yeah. We legally cannot say that William <laughs> Shatner led to his, his demise, demise right. but but we're just stating facts here. <laughs> um, Milgram said that the genuine drama underlying the obedience problem got lost in the welter of video <laughs> cliches. <laughs> so Milgram didn't like this movie. He thought it was a bad movie. <laughs> That that is truly shocking to me. But Shatner <laughs> plays Milgram, um, and the movie is called The Tenth Level because in the movie, the tenth level of twenty five total levels <laughs> is where the victim begins to cry out in pain. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, Wikipedia says that John Travolta was a student in the movie. I didn't see John Travolta. Maybe John Travolta's in the movie. I have no idea. But the character of Stanley Milgram is named Turner, Dr. Turner. 
And the Turner okay. character is not Jewish for some reason. And he has a black man as his department head. And uh, the movie is really like Shatner versus the world, where people are telling him, don't do the study. The study is uh, going to hurt people. You're being reckless. Yeah, 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 and at one yeah. point, William Shatner says... Why can't I care about this? Is it because I am not black or Jewish? Oh, no. And I was like, what is going on here? So, so. On this day? Like, Shatner is fighting the good fight, saying that white men who are not Jewish can care about things. What is going I don't understand it at all. Shatner, ahead of the curve in 76, taking on the woke yeah, mob. Yeah, taking on the woke mob. Absolutely. And Shatner is now like anti-environmentalist on Twitter. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I wonder oh, yeah. if he yeah. specifically chose to not have his character be Jewish. Or do you think Shatner got pilled by by the 10th level? That mm, this was the turning point. Yeah, for Shatner. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked yep. a lot about the Holocaust still <laughs> in the movie. So they were okay. still acknowledging the Holocaust as like a legitimate uh, inspiration yeah. or question right. for this right. experiment. So they showed footage of the Holocaust. They showed footage of Vietnam questioning why are people obedient to these groups? Why is there obedience within the groups? So the dramatic climax is that one of the subjects, uh, one of the 40 men from New Haven, Connecticut, (laughs) is a student who had served in Vietnam. And during the experiment, he has a breakdown while he's administering the shocks. He dramatically runs out of the laboratory he yeah. hides. Nobody can find him. It's sort of implied <laughs> okay. that he like is living on the street for a few days. Oh, like he's not just in the bathroom. He's gone. He's gone, gone. Yeah. So, like a trumpet in the ocean. <laughs> he's so affected and so upset by um, what is revealed to him about himself that he's just right. obedient to authority, that he runs away. And then William Shatner's character is dragged in front of a um, tribunal, basically, right. of professors Ooh. who are questioning him, saying, you're hurting people, you're hurting people. Oh, and so he, does he, he Nicholson's. I don't know what that means. You can't handle the truth? You need me on that wall? Is no, it, is it? that's not what happens. Oh, the okay. Vietnam oh. student comes back and gives an impassioned oh. speech about how incredible this research is and how much it's teaching us and oh, we need no. this research oh that's way better this this movie is better than a few good men <laughs> so uh the vietnam student says that turner is a visionary that inside of everybody is a cold-blooded killer who would shoot dogs <laughs> and cats and women and children oh. and old men and babies. Oh. And only because of this incredible work by Dr. Turner slash William Shatner do we know this about ourselves. Oh, wow. So um, Turner slash Shatner wins the tribunal and then he goes sure. <laughs> and he sobs on a woman that he used to have sex with. Um, <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. The movie is like 50% William Shatner via this character hitting on women. And then 50% sure. the experiment, right? No, yeah, I mean, it, it's Shatner, yeah. so we expect that. Mm-hmm. Yep, that is... It's a real movie. It really exists. <laughs> it's a real movie that got made mm-hmm. and happened. It got made, and it's on YouTube. That, I, I, I guess I might watch it. You should watch it, um, yeah. <laughs> it's wild, too, that, they, that on some level, they highlight the problems with this study that Milgram 
was not really aware of or highlighting. So yeah, it, it's interesting that for whatever failings it might have, they did really go after some of the things that needed to go after, I guess. So that's it. That's the uh, drama and the controversy and everything surrounding the 1963 Obedience to Authority paper Cool. Yeah. That, as you said, I think that's got to be the most famous one that we've done. It's definitely one that I've heard about a lot. I, I had heard about, I think, even before I was a psychology student, and absolutely one that I had not read and really didn't get a whole lot of the criticism of either, which is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the volume of criticism to original study is like. 100 to 1,000 to 1. The original study is very short, very concise. um, And everyone's like, no, it was wrong. You did this wrong. That's amazing. And it is nice that he left enough of a paper trail for people to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, This was 76. You'd think you would have learned from Nixon. If you record everything, it'll come back to bite you. But no. 63. 63. Oh, 63. Oh, yep. Okay. 63. Yeah. That's right. We didn't know about Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so Nixon should have learned from him, actually. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It is is good that he, he kept things around and kept them accessible such that the criticism could happen. And do you know anything about the state of obedience psychology now? You know, in any of these later analyses, did they talk about reversals or... Oh, the only thing I really know about the state of obedience studies now is that 100% of them are like marred by our collective knowledge being sure this original study. I don't know anything yeah. about original obedience studies happening today right? Um, versus studies trying to like disprove or prove or interact with right. the Milgram study. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and I so and you know, now that I think about it, it might be a little bit unfair of uh, of the NSF guy to say that there was no theoretical framework because on some level, you know, it's it seems like one of the things that he did was really solidify the notion of obedience as a thing to be investigated by social psychologists. Mhm. There's all sorts of other ways you could have framed this outside of this notion of obedience, you know, on a scale of defiance to obedience. It, it seems like, it's, so I don't know, it seems like he did do some stuff. Now, the fact that what he did wasn't good uh, <laughs> is maybe uh, n- not to be celebrated necessarily. Uh, but yeah, it, it seems undeniable that he really influenced the state of social psychology in a big way. Also, as you said, leading to things like, hey, do we need to check on our participants? Do we have to make mm-hmm. sure that they're okay at the end of this? Mm-hmm. I would have to guess that this is the most influential study that we've done so far. For sure. I think the most uh, culturally, the most culturally ubiquitous term I th- would guess would be Dunning-Kruger. But yeah. I think in terms of yeah. research impact and uh, just an understanding that we all know on an inherent level yeah, is that people are insanely obedient to authority, whether or not that's true. That's what right. the results of this study said. Yeah, yeah. It has just turned that into common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think that six is probably good for calling it season one. Yeah, we did it season one. Yeah. There are obviously several other big studies out there that people have heard about 
that people know about. Here's a little factoid I can drop. Yeah? Stanley Milgram went to school with the guy who did the Stanford prison experiment. Whoa, is that, is that so real? So they were buddies. Is yeah, that, that's real. Is that, so season two, we can visit the Stanford prison experiment. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of big name studies out there that we haven't done. I suppose we could also maybe do some follow-up on some of these other ones. We also talked mm-hmm. a little bit about just going over like what goes into a study, uh, how they're written up, some of those formal elements that I think would be fun, but that's because I'm that kind of nerd. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, there's a bunch of possibilities for, uh, for season two about what, how we want to do it, but in any event, I'm excited to do it. Yeah, it'll be fun. Cool. Uh, I guess thanks for listening to all of these and we'll do more. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye for now.